as we come to God's word. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for this time that we have this morning and thank you that you are a speaking God, that you speak into our lives, into the details of our lives. You tell us who we are. You tell us what it means to follow Jesus and help us to listen carefully to what you're saying this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if, you, if you've been with us over the last uh, few weeks, you'll know we've been looking at some big issues, slightly different from what we normally do, um, and we've, we've touched on the beginning and end of life and issues around abortion and euthanasia and assisted dying. Uh, we've also looked last week at male and female in creation and uh, questions around transgender issues. And this morning we turn to male and female in the church. Now maybe you've noticed, if you've been with us for a while, we have men and women involved in a wide range of roles and activities in the church, in in our services, in our youth and children's work, in leadership of small groups, on our staff team, serving as trustees. Uh, But we don't have women preaching in services. And uh, in the leadership of the church, as I've said, we have women on the staff team and the the trustees, but we also have a ministry oversight team, which is me and Chris Stead and John Kennedy. And when we formed that a year ago, we made it clear that unlike most other roles in the church, we believed it right that this should be a role for men only. Now, I think this probably isn't news to many people, but I know it is possible to be part of a church and not notice this kind of thing if it's not spelt out, or else it's possibly part of a church and notice this kind of thing and then wonder why on earth would a 21st century church in London be like that? So if you're joining us for the first time, you need to know that this isn't what we major on Sunday by Sunday. And in fact, when I think about it, in the the three years that I've been here as the senior minister, this is the first time that I've preached on this issue Um, And and yet, in the 21st century in Hampstead in London, we know, don't we, this isn't really where our culture is at all. You know, many would say, what on earth are you doing? Are you dinosaurs? Are you anti-women? Are you anti-equality? Are you anti-justice? And the thing is, if we never speak about these things and try to show how it's not just a random thing, it's not just some weird Christian subculture, but it flows out of our understanding of what Jesus came to do and what God says about men and women in the Bible. If we never speak about these things, the danger is we live by assumption and we start to assume and maybe impugn motives and stances that aren't there at all. Now, I've wrestled with this myself over the years of being a Christian, but I'm convinced that, yes, this is very countercultural, but it is what the Bible says. And I'm convinced it is good news for men and women. Now, maybe that sounds ridiculous and, and exactly what you'd expect to hear from a man. Uh, Corinne, who's ordained as a deacon in the Church of England, um, has chosen not, she's chosen not to seek uh, ordination as what is called a presbyter or a priest. 
and not to seek to be the senior minister of a church. She's going to be joining me for a Q&A after the service. For the last three weeks, we've done a Q&A after the service is finished. I know lots of people have to go and do family things and the, and the rest of it, but some have been able to stay and others have been able to join online. And indeed, you can obviously watch the Q&A later if you're unable to stay after the service. Uh, but we have a way of submitting questions for that, which we'll, we will put at the end of the service so that either from home online or, or here in the building, you're able to, uh, to, to contribute questions for that. So please do. Please do ask questions. Please do um, uh, raise the questions that you feel this uh, raises for you if they're not addressed as we look at God's word this morning. Uh, but we're going to get into this uh, via this passage that we heard read. And I think it's fair to say it, it, it is uh, challenging to hear. And there are verses in what we heard read that are particularly difficult to understand what they might mean. Um, and, uh, but I, I, as we do that, I want to try and help us see the broader picture of gender in the church and indeed the wider world as we began to consider last week. Um, in, in this letter in 1 Timothy, Paul is speaking to Timothy about what order looks like in the church, what he calls the household of God. How does a church need to be governed and ordered to ensure it functions effectively both within itself and for the benefit of God's people and looking outwards into the world? And one of the things he picks up on throughout the letter, not just in these verses, <clears throat> is the way men and women relate to each other in particular. So having encouraged uh, Timothy to stand firm and defend the gospel in chapter 1 and to be committed to prayer in chapter 2, he now turns first to men. And he picks up on things that first men and then women may be particularly prone to. Men don't fight, he says, Verse 8. I don't know why that picture is uh, a blank white thing. It shouldn't be, but sorry about that. It's meant to be a picture of something. Um, he, don't use whatever physical strength or power you have to dominate others. Your hands are not for punching, but for praying. We'll come back later to the extent to which men and women are innately different from one another, but it's striking to consider. Did you know this? The UK prison population is 95% male. Half of those people have been imprisoned for violence or sexual offences. There is something, there is something male about violence in particular. Now, obviously, that's a very complicated issue. But what is that about? Paul is saying men don't give in to violence, as many of you may be tempted to. Not necessarily criminally, but maybe in lesser ways. Don't give in to angry domination. Even in the church, pray, says Paul. Be known for your prayer, not for your domination of others. And then to women. This is similar to 1 Peter chapter 3 that we looked at when we did our series on 1 Peter during lockdown. He, he, he focuses here on manipulation. Don't use outward appearance to manipulate and to usurp. And if that isn't controversial enough, he then says, verse 
11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, there's all kinds of questions there, obviously. Does he literally mean be silent? Don't speak? Well, it's helpful to know quietness in verse 11 and silent in verse 12 are the same word. And they're the same word as verse 2, if you look back where he's saying, pray for kings and people in authority in order that all people, all citizens, may live peaceful and quiet lives. Now, that's a good thing there in verse 2. It's not saying citizens must never speak, but it means calm, not full of angst. And when you put that together with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, which many of us looked at in small groups in, in the last few months, He clearly envisages that women will speak in some ways in churches. He talks about them prophesying. He talks about them praying. And yet he says there's a divine design for men and women when it comes to teaching and having authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, he says. Now, there are two separate things in view there. The context in chapter 2 is public worship in church where people are praying, remember? And in that context, he says, a woman is not to teach a man. Again, he, he can't mean more than that. He can't mean that a woman can never teach a man anything anywhere. Or he can't, and he can't mean that a, a man should never learn anything from a woman. And actually, the New Testament has, has, talks about a general teaching and admonishing of one another. Colossians 3, verse 16. All Christians, men and women, teach and admonish one another in, in many different ways. But there is a specific teaching in the context of public worship that he says is, is men only. And with that, he, he says they should not have authority, which is then spelt out in chapter 3 to mean they should not be elders. Chapter 3, verse 2, an elder is the husband of one wife, which clearly shows he's addressing men in in those verses. He he then goes on to deacons in verse 8, and he lists what is to be true of them. Deacons are a distinct role, different from from elders. In Acts chapter 6, they're the people who are given the oversight of practical life of the church in order that the elders and the apostles in that instance can focus on the ministry of the word and of prayer. Uh, at St. John's, the, the trustees are basically deacons, broadly speaking. And, and verse 11, he says, literally, the women, which the newer NIV reflects accurately. Not, not literally the, the deacons' wives, though it, it could mean that, but it could also mean the female deacons. There are women serving as deacons in Paul's churches. In Romans 16 verse 1 we read of Phoebe, a woman described as a deacon. All of which seems to mean that Paul envisages women serving as deacons but he doesn't say the same about elders. And that seems to confirm then chapter 2 verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man to act as an elder in that way. Well why then? Why say this? Is it just a cultural thing that this was how things were in that cultural culture then? You know, women were uneducated, they couldn't possibly serve as elders or preach. 
some people say, but you know, and, and that's obviously not true now. Well, the thing is, Paul rules that out from, in verses 13 and 14 by linking his command not with culture, but with creation itself. The way God set things up originally, even before the fall, there was an order to creation. Remember, Eve is called a helper in, in Genesis 2, and as Genesis 3 reports it, it is Eve who is deceived, not Adam. Now, before we get too hot under the collar about how, you know, is Paul blaming Eve? Well, Adam, of course, is blamed very clearly in both Genesis 3 and the rest of the Bible. It is his sin. But what we see here is another aspect of how male and female relationships can go wrong. When the woman usurps the natural order of God's creation by encouraging Adam to sin, he then abdicated his own responsibility. Of course, he, he shouldn't have listened to her. And he did. And he rightly gets the blame and held responsible not just for his own sin, but also for that of his wife. So Paul is saying, in Genesis 3, things went wrong when Eve taught Adam to sin. And beyond that, there is something about the order of creation that makes it appropriate in the church for men to be elders and men to teach and preach in the mixed congregation, but not women. Now, we're going to come back to chapter 2, verse 15. This, women will be saved through childbearing. What, what could that mean? Well, as if the previous verses didn't have enough questions. We will come back to that in a moment. But as I said at the start, this gives us the basic case for why churches like ours understand the role of men and women in this way. It's sometimes called complementarianism, the idea that men and women are equal in value, equal in God's image, but have different roles. They, they complement each other. But there is so much more to say. We can begin by asking why. Why would God set things up like this when, you know, let's be honest, we've had two female prime ministers, women can be CEOs and doctors and judges and everything else in between. Can this really be right? Now, it's fair to say there are a range of responses to that question within the wider Christian world. There's a, there's, we, we know there's a... There's a a range of responses to that, even within our, the, the Church of England and Christians in this country and around the world would understand these things slightly differently. We don't believe this is a gospel issue, that unless you agree on this single point, you cannot be a Christian. That is not true. Being a Christian is when you trust in Jesus to be forgiven. And so you don't need to agree on this point in order to be a member of this church but we need to explain why as a as a leadership and why as a church these things have been uh, are set up like this here and why we believe this if we listen to what God is saying in his words this is what he is saying but it's also true to say that even among Christians who agree on this understanding of the Bible this complementarian understanding of male and female, equal in God's image, but different and with different roles. Actually, there are different views on how that works as well. You could call it a spectrum of views. So, so let, me, let me try and illustrate this. Um, you, you should have what the, the handout in front of you has a, a, 
bit on this as well. At, at one end, you've got the view of uh, Kathy Keller, who's the wife of Tim Keller, the US pastor and author, and she's written a short book called Jesus, Gender, and Justice. And in that book, her basic answer to the question, why has God done it like this, is to say, I don't really know, she says, but I trust that God is good and that's enough. You could describe her view as being like having two footballs. The two footballs are basically the same ball, but one has been designated an indoor football and the other an outdoor football. And once they've been designated that way, well, please don't use the indoor one outdoors or the outdoor one indoors because they're to be used indoor and outdoors. And if you uh, use them uh, differently from that, then th that's not what they've been designated for. But there's nothing intrinsic to them that would mean that you couldn't in principle use one indoors or outdoors. Do you see, that? Do you see what that, that view is saying? So, so men and women are just as gifted as one another. A woman can be as gifted as a teacher, as a man. But, but God has said, this is how men and women should relate in the church. And he is God and we're not. So we need to listen to him. And it's a basic question of whether or not we're prepared to do that. That, that is Kathy Keller's basic point. And, and writing from a, a Manhattan, New York context... As you can imagine, she's constantly faced with people saying to her, this is unjust, it's not fair, it's an issue of justice for women. How can you possibly say this? And her basic response is, like every other issue in life, it's first an issue of theology and interpretation of the Bible. That's what she says to people. If this is what the Bible says, this is what we should do. Now, I think there is a lot going for that approach, so it can still leave you with that lingering question of, but, but why? Why would God do it like this normally God's commands make sense on their own terms you can see yeah it, this this uh, why this is true and good and he's you know when he says don't steal or don't lie or don't commit adultery it chimes with real life shouldn't this also make more sense than it seems to at least superficially and maybe because of that some complementarian Christians go a lot further so right at the other end of the spectrum, at least within mainstream evangelical Christianity, you have someone like John Piper, again, an, an American pastor and theologian. And, and, and to be honest, in general, he's somebody I found incre incredibly helpful on a whole range of issues. But not so much on this. He says the reason God gave uh, different roles to men and women is that they are just innately different. And those differences can be seen everywhere, in all of life, he says. And this is where I think he's going beyond what the Bible actually says. He says, actually, you know, these differences mean women shouldn't exercise personal influence over men in any context at all, inside or outside the church. And, you know, to be, he says there are some jobs like police officer, for example, that involve authority. And he wonders if really that role is appropriate for a woman who wants to be feminine as God intends it. So you could say, rather than a two-football view, this is saying men and women are like footballs and cricket balls. They're equally valuable, he, he want to say, equally valuable, but just completely non-interchangeable. 
Now, some would say, independently of what both the Bible says on the one hand and most of modern culture says on the other hand, some would say, well, do you know what? The insights of modern psychology are showing more and more that there are innate differences between men and women. So, you know, there's plenty of overlap in traits, but there are things which, speaking generally of men and women generally, seem to be true of men, and some things which seem to be true of women just speaking generally, um, but acknowledging that everyone's an individual. But I, but I want to suggest alongside a, a wide range of other pastors and theologians that neither the Kathy Keller nor the John Piper position are quite right. So there is more to say than simply, well, God says it, so get on with it. But it's still God's word that has to govern our conclusions about gender. And one of my concerns with the John Piper position is it, it seems to end up prescribing male and female roles in a way that goes way beyond what the Bible actually says. And, 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 and along the way actually ends up sounding a, far more like just hanging on to a particular cultural expression of gender roles uh, rather than listening to what God says in his word. So, okay, the next question then is what does a biblically shaped view of gender look like beyond 1 Timothy chapter 2. And again, actually, the whole of 1 Timothy is helpful here. The key thing to understand is that Paul describes the church as a household, as a family. It's really important to get this. He sees the church as a family. And one of the qualifications for an elder chapter 3 verse 5 is he says managing his own family or household well because otherwise how can he take care of God's church which verse 15 he says is God's household and it's the same word as verse 5 so the church is a family and family relationships then become a metaphor for all kinds of ways for Christians to relate to each other now one of those relationships is parallel to the husband-wife relationship that we read about in Ephesians 5 and, and 1 Peter 3. Now it happens that through the course of preaching on Ephesians and 1 Peter in the last couple of years, we have looked at both those passages. And you might want to go back and, and listen to those. You can find them on the website if you want to hear more about those uh, particular passages. But there the command is, wives, submit to your husbands like the church submits to Christ. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives like Christ laid down his life for the church. So can you see, it's the same thing of equal but different. And it's saying, husbands, be leaders but not like dictators. Rather as servants, whose first thought is to your wife's needs and not your own. And now he's saying here, in the household of God, as well as the household of the family... There is a similar authority-submission relationship in view with men who teach and preach and are elders and others, both men and women, who are submissive to that teaching and leadership. But a really key thing to realise is that that's not the only relationship in a family. There are other relationships in a family too. There are parental relationships. And Paul says that that's true in the church. He describes himself as a father to Timothy. In the Old Testament, Deborah, who is a judge in the, in the book of Judges, she's called a mother in Israel. 
And, and that doesn't mean that Paul, either Paul or Deborah were biological parents, but that they functioned like a parent to others in the family of God. Do you see? So there's, there's parental relationships. There are son and daughter relationships. And, and look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. You know, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Do you see what he's saying? Behave to this older gentleman as if he were your father. This is a family, the church, do you see? And then along with that, verse 2, brother-sister relationships. And we know, actually, it's a really common way the Bible talks about other people in the church as brothers and sisters. This is a family. And he put, Paul builds on this wider way of men and women relating to other men and women in the church. In, in Titus chapter 2, older women are encouraged to train younger women. In a broad, non-biological sense, they are like mothers to them. And he goes on in verse 6, to, in, in, in Titus 2, to encourage Titus as a man to do the same to younger men. So do you see, the authority submission thing is only one type of relationship, even within the church. There are many other types of relationship. And I think this helps us then to understand that verse, chapter 2, verse 15, women will be saved through childbearing. Now let me explain how. There's a way of speaking in the Bible where a part of something stands for the whole. So if I get a new car and I say, hey, check out my new wheels you know what I mean don't you you know I don't mean come and look at the tires come and check that check out the alloy spokes or, or whatever I mean come and look at the car but I'm speaking of the car by referring to one bit of the car and that seems to be what is going on here so clearly one speaking generally clearly one aspect of being female is the potential to bear children. Now, I know that can be a painful thing when, for one reason or another, that isn't possible, either through unwanted singleness or through infertility. But think of all the ways that Paul encourages older women to be mothers to others in the church. So when he says they will be saved through childbearing, he's saying they will be saved through embracing their God-given role as mothers in its widest sense of motherhood. Having children is just one, you know, having, biologically having children is one aspect of motherhood, but Paul is saying, do you know what? In the family of God, every woman is a mother and every man is a father. Now, you might then ask, well, what does he mean by they will be saved through childbearing? Well, the, the apostle of justification by faith alone clearly doesn't mean their salvation depends on this, but that is the path that salvation takes, embracing the role that God has given us as, as female or indeed male. Now, I know that this verse and indeed the other verses around it are, are difficult and contentious, so do come back to me if you want to talk through that further do put a question in later if you'd like to but let's turn to some some reflections before we finish some some, some so what on what we've been looking at and you can see some of these written down on the handout again the first thing is that we're so individualistic in our culture 
There was, a, there was a social science study done on different nations and how much people think of me singular or us plural. You know, what do we default to? Do we just think of me and my life or do we think of the life of the community and the family? And Eastern cultures, African cultures, tend to be much more about us, plural. The top three countries in the whole world for individualistic thinking, you can probably guess, they were, it was first the USA, then Australia, then the UK. Now, there's a lot of countries in the world, but the top three for individualistic happen to be those three major Western countries. We tend to think life is really all about what I get out of it. And then when we apply that to church, we're thinking, does, does that help me as a, as a Christian? Um, and, and, then we, and then we say things like, am I enabled to serve in all the ways I want to serve? But the biblical way of thinking is not me, it's us. Think of the other big metaphor for church, apart from family in the New Testament. What's the other big metaphor? The body. The body of Christ, built up of many members with different gifts. Men and women in the church all have a role to love and serve and build one another up, to be brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters in the family of God. So that's one thing to note. Then... There's this question about a gift. The, the, the idea that preaching is restricted to men can be a very painful and sore topic for some people, you know, because someone might say, look, here is this woman, and, and she seems highly gifted in her understanding of the Bible and theology, and she has a great ability to teach. Why shouldn't she teach men as well as women? But we often say in church life, in general, and not just on this issue, a gift is not the same as a role. Just because someone has the gift of teaching doesn't mean they must use it anywhere and everywhere. And that applies to men and it applies to women. But of course it would be argued that men at least have the potential to be a leader of a church and the potential to preach to a mixed congregation. So why shouldn't women? Well, the best analogy for this seems to be the gift of sex. If you think about it, it's a good gift from God, but it's designed to be used in a particular context. And when it comes to sex, it's designed to be used in a marriage between a man and a woman. And it's actually when it comes to sex. Sometimes people say, but look, here are two people that love each other. What's the harm if they're not married but they want to move in together? And our culture would absolutely say Christians are being weird about this, just as they would say the same about gender roles in the church. And again, the answer is, do we trust God or don't we with his design for men and women, with sex, within marriage, with these particular gender roles? There is more we can say, though, of course. It's, it's yes, it's not just no. We, we, we also need to remember there are many roles for teaching open to women as well as men in the church. Many different roles. We have, in our church, we have men and women leading small groups together, <clears throat> women and men teaching in the youth and children's work, women and men informally teaching one another, 
women in particular teaching other women in a variety of contexts and, and Corinne on the staff team leading in that. But then, to spell it out then, what is it that means we say it's fine for women to be lecturers and teachers in other contexts but not here in church preaching on a Sunday? It's because of this family metaphor. This sense that God has designed men and women to complement each other. That's true in the biological family. And we see that with husbands and wives in the New Testament. And it's true in the church family. But the point then is other institutions beyond the biological family and the church, they're not families. And so one way that we might go wrong is if we apply other non-biblical pictures to church. So if church is really just a club, if, we're, if church is a business, if church is an enterprise, if church is an organisation like any other, well, of course it would be right for women and men to fill roles interchangeably, like they do in the rest of the world. But no, this is a family. And God has set up families in a particular way. And within the family, there is one particular relationship which is about servant-shaped authority and godly willing submission and in the end the point of that is to model the gospel to model how Jesus both lay down his life as a servant leader and to model how Jesus willingly submitted to his father what then happens if we don't acknowledge these God-given differences in role between men and women if we just say, oh no, men and women must be interchangeable in every role, no exceptions. Well, I think Keller's point stands. If, if we do that, as far as I can see, and please show me if you think I and others are reading 1 Timothy and the rest of Scripture wrongly. But if we do that, we're not listening to how God has set things up. But more than that, I think there are two extremes that we will drift towards when we do that. One is the extreme where men abdicate their God-given responsibility to lead and women usurp that authority, as Paul warns about Eve here. That's one extreme. The other is that men dominate in an abusive way and women become entirely passive. And neither of those is a good thing. I think some of our reaction to these things is sometimes conditioned by the fact that we're worried that what we're really saying is, for example, uh, men need to be allowed to throw their weight around. That's not servant-hearted leadership as modelled by Jesus. That isn't what we're talking about. Because there is a middle way, as they say, and that involves servant leadership on the one hand from male church leaders in particular, and female submission as to the Lord, which is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 5 and 1, Timothy, 1 Peter 3. And of course is also true of other men as much as women in the church. Now I said at the start that complementarianism is not just about rules, it's good news. It's good news because like the relationship between husband and wife in marriage, it points to the gospel. It says authority doesn't have to be selfish but can be servant-hearted for the good of others. It says submission doesn't have to be unwilling and forced, but can be willingly given, just as all men and women submit to Christ. It says the world is not 
a world of chaos, but is designed with order. And despite the spoiling effects of sin, God hasn't given up on his creation. And that is what we're about as a church, believing the gospel for ourselves and taking that gospel out into the world. We want to let it shape who we are as a community in order that people can look at us and say, you believe something different. You believe something that I want to know more about. Why do you take what God says about men and women so seriously when the world around you tells you you're mad? What could possibly move you to do that? And even in that, we have an opportunity to share how the gospel shapes the life of our church and how the gospel, the good news about Jesus dying and rising, is the model, the foundation for all that we're about. So even as we head back into lockdown, let's keep that gospel at the heart of what we're doing and saying and thinking and feeling. Now, there is a whole lot more we could say, and we will, as I said, have that time after the, uh, after the service. Um, so please get ready to, to put questions in for the Q&A. And even if you can't stay, but you know there's a question you'd really like to hear answered, just get the details of how to do that electronically before you leave, and then put the question in, and then watch the Q&A later um, on YouTube, and uh, you'll be able to catch up with it then. For now, let's, let's pray. Father, these are things which are not easy to think about and speak about. we praise you for Jesus who died and rose and in whom we have new life together as a family, as your family, the household of God. When we trust in Jesus, we, our life is no longer about me and my priorities, but it's about us as your people. And we pray more and more that the gospel would shape every aspect of our life as the family of God. Whether we're thinking about what it means to be male and female, whether we're thinking about what it means to serve in many, many different ways in the life of your church. Help us where this has been a, a painful thing for us for one reason or another. Help us to be able to come to Jesus and see in him the love that lays down his life, causes him to lay down his life for us. As we will remember when we come to the Lord's table in a moment. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.